for me, when I really think about the complexities of restorative justice, what I'm really thinking about is how holistically are we really thinking about how we're integrating this stuff? Because when we talk about the justice aspect of it, right, there's all of these things that have to be happening kind of simultaneously uh -huh. for justice to, to be taking place. And I think beyond that, sometimes what happens is people see like, oh, restorative justice, That's this is the fun, right? Even though patients already made it very clear, it's not new, but it feels new for a lot of people and it feels innovative and it feels like this like great tool that we can just use. And it's like, yes. And, um, right, there's, we want to maintain the integrity of what restorative justice is and can be in spaces and communities. And I think too often, sometimes people are like, well, let's just get in a circle. Like, well, what does that mean to be in circle? Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, we're talking about restorative justice. I'm joined by a special co-host, Jesse Benvenisti from UC Berkeley. We are joined by four guests who have practiced restorative justice, written about it, taught it, and helped evolve restorative justice and restorative practices. We're so excited to learn from you. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and an online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. This episode is sponsored by Leadershape. Go to leadershape.org to learn how they can work with you to create a more just, caring, and thriving world. Today's episode is also sponsored by Simplicity, a true partner. Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. As I mentioned, I'm your co-host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach. And you can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm broadcasting from Minneapolis, Minnesota at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of both the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. I'm joined by my co-host, Jesse, who helped organize this and, and is helping to, to host this. Jesse, please tell us a little bit about you and a little bit of how we got here today. Great, thank you, Keith. Hello, my name is Jesse Benvenesti. I use she and her pronouns, and I currently serve as a conduct coordinator in the Center for Student Conduct at UC Berkeley. Additionally, I'm a co-chair of the Conflict Resolution Community of Practice with ASCA, or the Association of Student Conduct Administrators, and work, and work closely with Dr. Zach Ritter on strengthening the network um, of student affairs professionals utilizing restorative justice in higher education. The community of practice has been, um, has been hosting a number of conversations on restorative justice and student affairs and how um, one may implement restorative practices in an educational environment or organization. I have a graduate degree, degree in conflict and dispute resolution and a background in educational leadership and policy. I am currently, and I'm currently broadcasting from Berkeley, California, sitting on the territory of Huchun, the ancestral land of Chuen, Chu, excuse me, Chuchen Wu, speaking of the Ohlone people. Awesome. I'm so glad you're here to help us uh, navigate the conversation. Let's get to our fabulous guest. Thanks for joining us today. Tell us a little bit about you and uh, your connection to restorative justice. And Lena, we're going to start with you. 
Thank you, Keith and, and Jesse, and thank you for bringing us together and for highlighting this topic. I, I am really excited to be with these brilliant folks uh, who I happen to very much admire uh, beyond this space as well. Uh, I'm Dr. Lena Crane. I use she, her pronouns, and I work with student wellness-related programs and services at Bucknell University. Uh, Bucknell is located on the uh, unceded ancestral homelands of the Susquehannock people here in central Pennsylvania. Uh, at Bucknell, I provide leadership for uh, wellness-related programs and services, which include student health, counseling, nutrition, interpersonal violence prevention and advocacy, and student conduct and conflict resolution. And my connection to restorative justice came primarily through incident response uh, and specifically in student conduct and conflict resolution. I have been a major advocate for uh, the integration of conflict resolution practices, such as RJ, uh, into campus responses to harm. And I have worked with about a dozen campuses at, at various stages of their RJ exploration and, and implementation journeys, uh, everything from facilitator training all the way through policy development. Uh, and I chaired the most recent ASCA Gearing Academy track related to restorative justice. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, we're glad you're here. Desiree, tell us a little bit more about you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me here. I echo everything that Lena just said. Uh, so my name is Dr. Desiree Anderson, and I'm on the unceded and uncharted land of the Choctaw in New Orleans, although technically I'm in Baton Rouge right now in a hotel, but that's besides the point. Um, and uh, in my full-time capacity, I serve as the Associate Dean for Diversity and Student Affairs at the University of New Orleans, and I've been there since 2019. Um, and I come to this restorative justice work very similarly in trying to think about how do we think about harm differently. How do we uh, meet the needs of students, specifically those who have been um, impacted by incidents of bias that we don't have other pathways to address often in institutions of higher education because they're not policy violations. Um, and that really, uh, really drew my interest into how can we think more holistically about addressing the needs of impacted people. Um, and have been really engaged in that work um, for the past six, six years-ish uh, in that time, um, and very excited to be um, in community with all of you all today to, one, learn some more from you all as well, because you're all brilliant minds, um, and to share the little bit of knowledge that I do have. So thank you for your time today. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So glad you're here. Patience, tell us about you. Hello, my name is Patience Bryant. I use she, she they pronouns. Um, I currently serve as the Director for, um, for Black and African American Equity at San Jose State University which is home of the Moet Melange tribe. Um, uh, my office is, a, is an inaugural position that was created at the demand of the Black community at San Jose State in summer of 2020. Um, I got introduced to restorative justice um, during my doctoral studies where I was studying conflict resolution and restorative justice was introduced to me as a concept. And so when I switched to do student conduct work, I have had the opportunity to fuse it into my practices in my offices, supporting other campuses and infusing into their work. And now as a conduct adjacent campus partner, <laughs> um, I use it where my office, we are part of the bias incident resource team. So we do it for bias response, but also I found myself in supporting our housing department and creating um, RJ process for them, as well as working with in particular our black students as they've been navigating working with our university police department and other things mm -hmm. throughout the community, um, putting more sort of practice into um, what our current campus does. Yeah, awesome. I'm noticing how well represented we are here geographically. Valerie, go ahead, round us out. Tell us a little bit about you. 
Thanks, Keith. Thanks, Jesse. Um, I too am very honored to be here seated among my colleagues. My name is Dr. Valerie Glassman. I use she, her pronouns. And as of July 18th of this year, I am the Senior Director for Student Affairs in the Offices of Medical Student Education at UNC Chapel Hill School of Medicine. North Carolina is home to the Okanichi, Lumbee, Kahari, Haliwasaponi, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Meharan, Tuscarora, Saponi, and Waccamaw nations, along with many other indigenous peoples. And I also want to take this time to acknowledge and honor the crucial role of enslaved people in the early days of our campus. Enslaved people were sold as, as cheated property to help fund the establishment of UNC. And the labor of enslaved people built UNC Chapel Hill and undergirded its operations until emancipation. I acknowledge and give thanks to the enslaved people who built UNC and their descendants. Uh, my experience with restorative justice is similar to the pathways that my colleagues came into understanding and working with restorative justice. In a former role, I served as an assistant dean of students uh, in the Office of Student Conduct uh, at a university not too far down the road from UNC Chapel Hill. And over time, I began to understand and really notice how students were having different experiences with the student conduct system, even though the conduct system uh, asserts itself to be equitable to all students. I noticed that students from diverse backgrounds were experiencing the disciplinary process in many different ways. And so I started to think more holistically about how we could really make this experience um, inviting, inclusive, and equitable to students who are accused of misconduct. I also began to think about how we could use restorative practices when, as my colleagues mentioned before, there is no allegation of misconduct, but really addressing conflict between and among students. Mm -hmm. Great. I, I love that as you all are talking, we're, we're sort of framing this in terms of sort of beginning learning about restorative justice in the conduct realm, but then expanding it beyond that to bias protocols, hate incidents, things like that. And then I'm hearing more and more talk about folks talk about it as a proactive approach. How do we use circles to build community to kind of prevent some of the harm from being done and some of those things? So um, maybe that leads us to where we're going to go next. Elena, we just want you to, to get us started here with some basic understandings of restorative justice and restorative practices. And then I have no, no worry that we'll make it more complicated from there. So help us make it simple and then we'll mess it up. Okay, well, I'll do my best. <laughs> at, at its most basic, when we say restoration, you know, restoration as the heart of restorative philosophy and practices and justice, restoration just means repairing harm and, and healing and building community and relationships. This is a very relational community-centered practice. And a restorative philosophy is that framework. And it's something that, that centers the collaboration and relationships and also things like truth sharing as the means of, of building those relationships or sometimes repairing relationships. Uh, restorative practices are the tools that facilitate the, the repair of harm and, and the building or healing of, of community relationships. And that could be anything from a conversation, that could be the, the physical reconstruction of, of a space that I damaged, you know, the list goes on. Uh, in some spaces, when people say restorative justice or RJ, they, they're referring to education that espouses a restorative philosophy or uses restorative practices. But uh, RJ, uh, true RJ is also a, a unique conflict resolution practice, and, and that is a, a process of repairing harm by bringing together folks who initiated or caused harm and those who were harmed or affected so that they could mutually decide and, and co-create what's needed to repair the harm. 
as part of that basic understanding, I think it's important to, to emphasize what Valerie shared, which is what is distinct from other forms of, of justice or injustice, frankly, approaches that tend to be more procedural or transactional, uh, retributive, punitive in, in their approach. And, and notably, those systems, those approaches are, are also those that reproduce elements of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we know a lot of things about that system, notably that, that it disproportionately harms marginalized communities. And so mm -hmm. retributive approaches also in, in moments where we have opportunities to, to transform harm, we've actually been compounding it. And so that, that distinction that by contrast, RJ is centering the voices of, of those involved in a situation. Uh, it's focusing on their sense of, of how to repair and it's resituating the power with those who are involved. So it's also in that sense, a, a decolonizing practice in student mm -hmm. conduct. Uh, RJ is more aligned with, for example, transformative justice and, and social justice. So mm -hmm. if that plants some, some seeds as we do get uh, more into our complexity. Right. And I guess what I'm hearing is the restorative philosophy is sort of this big, broad idea. Then we have restorative practices within that, and we can use a very specific restorative justice process in that, but then other things we can bring along. Um, Desiree, I know you want to complicate it from here. So please help us think about this more complexly and with some more nuance and expand this and we'll keep going from here. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, thank you for what's already been shared so, so much. And I think that that definitely sets the, the groundwork for what restorative justice and restorative practices can be. And I think as you you sort of already alluded to earlier, it's really thinking about the relational model of that, right? And really thinking about what restorative justice can be in terms of right, this idea like, well, what are we repairing to, right? So I think that that's always the thing that, that comes mm -hmm. up. And so part of this work is about how do we actually build relationships mm -hmm. so that we then have something to like attach it to. Because if I don't have a relationship with you, then I don't really have a desire to, to repair anything. I don't have a desire to be committed to the active work of holding mm -hmm. myself accountable and offering some type of grace if I'm on the receiving end of that impact. So I think so much of the work, and I, especially in the work that I do, I really, really emphasize the value and necessity for the community building aspect of this work. And how do we think about the, the very small things that we could do, right? We think about restorative justice and restorative practices as a spectrum. There's a spectrum of things that can be done. So all of these things kind of put together is the justice part. And like the, the other pieces are like these practices, the small things that you could be doing um, with the way that you ask questions, um, you know, how you're embedding kind of community building, or as some people might say, like the tier one stuff, mm -hmm. right? So there's these different layers that I think um, add on top of each other that really start with that baseline of thinking about what exactly is community and how does that community play a role in the outcomes of that? And I think that that's also very different from comparative to other models is that you're really thinking about harm beyond just the individual people as well. You're also thinking about the community aspect and what role and responsibility do we have from the outside in that process. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the people who are directly harmed and the people who are indirectly harmed yes, too, absolutely. right? Involving all of those. I really love that we're centering relationships and community. I think many folks in student affairs beyond conduct really are focused on that work. And, and this can be a, a philosophy and practices that can help us uh, do some of that. And, and I really appreciate you mentioning, you know, asking people to uh, offer accountability can be really hard and asking people to offer grace can even be even harder. So um, all the work that goes into helping people get to that place where they can do that and want to do that. Uh, patience, take us from here. Where? What else would you like to add to this? 
I think it's important also to acknowledge that this is not new. This is like a new concept. Um, indigenous communities, tribal communities, they've been doing this for centuries. Mm -hmm. um, we did the Western world just put a label on it called restorative practice, restorative justice. So I think it's important to honor the fact that we didn't create this. Um, this is something that has been around forever. And so it's important to know that for, for folks who are in communal living, this is not a new concept. It just mm -hmm. has a name. And for many, for many communities, particularly communities of color, this idea of the communities, the community holding each other accountable is not new. Um, at the most basic level, kindergartners are doing this work. You've heard my <laughs> feelings. I'm apologizing. I'm going to fix it. And so yes. it's, it's, it's not hard. I mean, it does have sometimes depending how complex we get into, it does take, yeah. does take work. Um, but it is not a hard concept for individuals to get grasp. And as one of my folks, this is not new. We just put a name on it yeah. <laughs> and took it and took it and took it on took it for a spin. And so um, this is nothing new. This is a regular concept that have been going on for centuries. Yeah, I love that you're bringing back to the roots of that. And as Lena was talking about, it's kind of a decolonizing process and going back to some of those other communities, which I think so many people are really craving and wanting. And I think we want to honor that and integrate it in rather than appropriate it. Um, and yeah, I love you mentioning kindergartners because I, I watch little children. They do this so, so I don't know that it's easy for them, but it just natural. seems like it's natural. Mm -hmm. It's, it's natural. how you in a relationship. Yes. And when you step on someone's toe, you say, oh, I'm so sorry and and repair. And how do I make it better? And then um, it's just another great reminder that um, I, I'm more and more convinced as I get older and particularly watching little children that it's, I'm less interested in being smart and knowing things and more interested in being wise and unlearning things, mm -hmm. right? And getting back to, to some of that brilliance. Uh, Valerie, what, what did we miss? What do you wanna to add to this? Well, I, I really love, uh, you just mentioned the, the word unlearning. And mm -hmm. for me, it really took a while to unlearn policies and code, mm -hmm. right? I think mm -hmm. that in a traditional uh, sort of system of training folks to do student conduct, conduct adjudication, you look at policies, how to weigh information, how to weigh credibility, um, and then decide whether or not somebody's behavior based on what information you've shared, you know, violates that shared agreement of what behavior is. But I began to think a lot about who contributed to that shared agreement of what mm. our behavior should be. And so it, as my colleagues have mentioned, it's really about decentering the policy, the code, and putting the individuals, as, as Desiree shared before, in the center of the conversation. As you mentioned, relationships before, it's a mutual agreement for folks to talk about the harms that they may have caused one another or one party to another. And in my mind, it's a lot harder to do that than it is to talk with a conduct administrator about the policy that you might have violated. To sit face to face with the person that you have caused harm to can be a transformative experience. I mean, above and beyond restorative, right? It can transform both of the individuals in that room by uh, sort of a facilitated conversation on authentic feelings and harms and community impact. And so um, I really just think that um, we can incorporate practices of restorative justice and restoration in almost any conversation that we have with anybody at any point in time. Thank you so much, Valerie. I really appreciate what you have to say around how um, these restorative practices can transform relationships. And I think even there's opportunity to transform organizations and how we mm -hmm. respond to um, incidents of concern or harm um, in a university community. And so I think 
Um, that even goes back to some of our goals as conduct folks or for some of us, for some of us are, um, and I think we've all had some experience within conduct, um, you know, through these restorative practices, I think you speak to how um, we can reach those goals or facilitate that transformational experience for students. Um, so we have another question for you all. Um, I'm gonna transition us. So our next question is, what are some, some of the ways restorative practices can be integrated in student affairs and higher education? And Valerie, we're gonna start with you. Um, if you can kind of share some of your thoughts on this question, we um, would love to hear from you. Yeah, um, to me, I think there are very few situations where if the parties are interested and willing to participate, that we cannot apply restorative principles in any kind of conversation or conflict resolution. Um, so I'll, I'll start there by saying it's got to be a mutual agreement. Um, it can be very difficult, and there are proxy ways of involving, for example, victims who might not want to face a perpetrator or something like that. But in, I would say, the majority of opportunities where restorative justice would be applicable, it can be done. Um, and I'll start with, you know, very basic spaces that, you know, I think the typical entry point for a lot of folks in understanding restorative practices and where we can insert them into community life on our campuses is through student conduct. Um, one of the more common ways is thinking about whether your process has a deterministic point of view that sends students directly to a conversation with an administrator or a conduct board based on, quote, the nature or allegation that the student is um, alleged to have violated uh, of the, the policy. Um, but if we think about possibilities of what our colleague uh, Jennifer Meyer-Schrag and um, Monique Thompson call the magic real estate, which is that space that happens after the incident has occurred, before we send the student a charge letter, we might think about what are some reflexive practices that we can involve ourselves in and the community so that we're not automatically sending the students to a conduct board hearing for a suspension, right? How do we intake the incident in such a way that allows us to get a greater understanding of the holistic context of the incident. Um, and so thinking about uh, pathways for conflict resolution within a formal conduct process that allows the student the opportunity, if they're willing, to engage in restorative dialogue and repair harms to the community, which is actually a structured format, right? If you're really thinking about it, but in such a way that allows them to be confronted by the harms that they've caused. Um, and I'll just add in another thing here. I've, I've seen models where um, restorative practices can be introduced in academic integrity cases as well, mm -hmm. where there's not necessarily a direct community member who's been impacted by a student's cheating or stealing or something like that. But uh, having a student uh, speak uh, to a faculty member or a peer about um, how that student's academic dishonesty has impacted the greater community abstractly can be um, a great contributor to um, reducing recidivism for academic misconduct and also help the student really want to um, learn scholarly procedure and engage in better um, academic writing in the future. I appreciate that, Valerie. I, th I really appreciate you ha highlighting for me, or, or at least what you highlighted for me is the importance of um, the work that we do, like once we're made aware of an incident or once we, you know, kind of on the out front of um, 
the intake. Um, I think you also spoke to kind of the conversations that we have with maybe the reporting party or whoever um, brought the information to us. And so that really sets us, sets us up for a, a restorative or successful restorative process and uh, greatly appreciate that. Uh, Patience, I wanna um, turn it over to you. Yes, Valerie kind of opened the door, kind of what I want to touch on was the academic side. And so um, my previous role as a director of student conduct at Long Beach State, and a lot of my work was on classroom management with faculty who were just like, just help me manage this classroom. And so I started working with them on basically creating community standards, which is part of restorative practice. And they said, well, rules, I said, no, these are not rules. This is a community agreements that the entire class is going to agree to do for the entire for the entire semester. Um, it, it definitely increased once we went virtual because we had to, to mm-hmm. tweak some things. Um, in a Zoom setting, the chat could sometimes get, exci- get a little activated. And so this allowed for the faculty member to include their, their students in community standards, say, how do we want this class to run? What do you all need from me? This is what I need from you. How do we show up for each other in this space, whether it be in person or virtually? Um, also worked with faculty on how to infuse it in their group projects. One thing I found a lot when students were allowed to select their own groups, some, some groups, particularly certain demographics were always left out. But however, when the faculty assigned it, the group projects went a lot better. But even within that, I said, how are you setting these groups up for success? How are you saying this is expectations for groups? And so once again, it's building that community. It allows not just the faculty member have to hold students accountable, it allows other students to hold other students accountable. Say, hey, as a, as a, as a class, we said, we weren't going to do rude things in the chat. And I guess you're doing this. So it allows everyone to be part of how they want to be treated. And that's part of sort of practice. Um, it was a simple concept. It was so interesting to see the wheels turning or faculty members like, oh, I can do this. And like, you can do it. And trying to figure out how to do it in a large class when maybe you have 300 people. I said, let's create some mini cohorts. Mm-hmm. And therefore they're checking in on each other, but they're still creating those concepts within those, those expectations for each other, even within a little mini groups for the entire semester. And so once again, it's a community being built. We're holding each other accountable. And if someone fails to uphold that, those standards, now the entire community can say, hey, remember what we talked about at the beginning of the semester, and this is how we're going to move forward as a class. Yeah, I've, I've learned, um, I guess through my experience, I've learned the importance of the curricular approach as well and kind of implementing it within a, a classroom setting and not just um, in specific, you know, uh, responding to, uh, as we spoke to earlier, responding to an incident. Um, I think in, in the classroom, we have the opportunity to practice those skills, um, uh, model that for our students, and also create an environment where restorative practices can be implemented throughout campus. And so um, I appreciate you um, adding that patience. Uh, Desiree? Uh, do you have anything to add? Uh, sure, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be quick. Uh, so I think just exactly as patients just mentioned around agreements and thinking about how you might do that process in other spaces. So thinking about in the residence halls, right, with your either roommate agreements or floor agreements. Um, I've done some stuff with athletic teams uh, mm. with, you know, having the coaches kind of involved in that process. So I think any space that you can get, you know, where there's pockets of communities already built, that they're already there getting them to do stuff in that, you know, and through the agreement process, because it's about that shared decision-making and it makes it a lot easier to hold each other accountable Mm -hmm. for the things that you all said you were going to do. Like, I didn't tell you to do it. You said you were going to do that. So Mm -hmm. in doing that. And I think one of the, I always say it's like the easiest places to start, although sometimes it feels weird to start there would be in re-entry processes. So really thinking about, especially in higher education where students had to leave for medical reasons, 
you know, they were suspended or, you know, whatever reason it was that they had to leave the, the institution and they're returning back, often they're required to meet with so many different departments to get things going and, and be yeah. kind of come back into the community. Um, and so that's a great way to kind of start where you can just get all those people together into kind of one space to figure out how we're going to support this individual as they're returning to campus. And also, especially if they had to leave for some type of disciplinary action process, how are we, you know, communicating to the people that they're returning, you know, who's, who, who may have been impacted that this person has met all of the things that they were, they said they were going to do when they left, you know, you're going to be seeing this person on campus. So it's not a shock <laughs> that this person has returned. So there's a lot of spaces there and particularly with reentry that also is I, easy is not the right word, but it's there's systems already kind of in place that are much easier to attach a restorative process to than there might be in some other spaces. So I wanted to add those two things in as well. Thanks. Can I jump in for a second and just echo that, Desiree? I think that's so beautiful because when we said well, the student who's reentering the community in a circle, it's a visual representation of their circle network, right? So they have everybody in one space who's able to contribute and welcome that student back in and share the community expectations. So it visually portrays this circle, which is a strong structure for the student to come back. So I, I really appreciate that you showed that. And, and I would like to share one of the things that reintegration did. I, I used, it was mandatory for all student organizations that were separated. Mm -hmm. on, I did it. It was a mandatory for student organizations for me um, who are either cease and desist or suspended because we wanted to show our support for them, mm -hmm. in particular dealing with our, our fraternity sorority life, but also want to remind them expectations that the university had for them. And so it was a great. I think it was a, it was a great way to show as a conduct director partnering with student life and their director with with the advisor. It just show we support you here, we want you here, but here's some kind of like that, like like Desiree said, some tools and things to get you there to be successful as a student organization on our campus. Great. Thank you so much for introducing that um, the reintegration process. I think that's critical to um, the work we do, especially within student conduct. Um, Lena, I, I wanted to um, hand it over to you. Um, some you. wonderful things have been said, but I know that you have all these wonderful things to add. So Thank you. I mostly just want to zoom out and and frame what Valerie and, and Desiree and patients have have given us some examples and say earlier on, Desiree mentioned a uh, tier one. And when we say tiers, uh, RJ has applications in what sometimes conceptualized as, as three tiers, where that first tier is, is that relationship building, community development, setting of expectations, and also really powerful in prevention education. And so that's what we think of as tier one. Mm -hmm. Tier two is, is some of what we've touched on in, in terms of response to harm. And so uh, in, in, for example, a, a conduct setting, like those restorative responses to an incident of, of discord or harm. And then that third tier is what we're starting to, to discuss now, which is reintegration support. And so I think by framing it in those three tiers, it helps to illustrate that, that RJ has a place in, in every department, in every setting, whether you are in the business, so to speak, of, of uh, building a relationship, setting an expectation, onboarding students, or uh, responding to incidents, or to providing support, you know, whether it's support for, for uh, a forced separation or, or a medical uh, leave and anything. So uh, it has utility in, in conduct and conflict resolution, yes, but res ed, uh, orientation, advising, like, like every, we are social beings, so RJ has a place in, in all of our spaces. Yeah, I appreciate you all sharing that because I'm hearing from so many folks who want to talk about restorative practices process at the very first community meeting at the beginning of the year or with orientation groups or things like that because 
if we can get this right from the beginning, then that can eliminate a lot of the harm and eliminate all the conduct cases and eliminate some of these things because they get cleaned up in between. And that to me is, I think, a really exciting place to go, the proactive ways of integrating this in the build community. How are we going to hold each other? It also normalizes that difficulties are going to happen rather than we're, it's all going to be rainbows and butterflies, which we know is unrealistic, but they all they all think at the beginning. It also means that the muscle memory is there. It's not mm -hmm. as weird. It's not yeah. as new yeah. to sit and you know, to do the practice of a circle or to have a tough conversation. If you've already been present it, mm -hmm. doing the the early you know investment of building the relationship. Right. Starting the culture off early. Right. We do it in our first residence hall meeting where we have a circle. Then the next couple of times we do it, it's not weird or awkward. Right. It's right. part of the expectation. And I do know there's a lot of practitioners who um, believe that a, re a responsive process cannot work if we don't have that proactive community building process in place. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really appreciate that perspective and think there's a lot, um, a lot of truth to that, um, like, and kind of just echoing what everyone else has already shared. Is there anything else folks, like any other thoughts that folks have for this um, question? Are we ready to transition to the next one? So we're going to dive, uh, dig a little bit deeper here. Um, what are some co complexities related to restorative justice that we want to make sure doesn't get missed in this conversation? And Desiree, we'll start off with you. Yeah, I think, you know, earlier uh, Valerie had mentioned, like, you know, there's not really a space where we can't see restorative justice working. And I agree. And at the same time, I say, although we can use restorative justice for everything, does not mean we should use restorative justice for everything. <laughs> That's right. A lot of head nods, a lot of head nods there. And I think, you know, what Valerie was kind of alluding to in that, in that, in that conversation or that part earlier was really that, right, we, we can set the stage for uh -huh. it to work, yes. but if we can actually set the stage for it to work, then we shouldn't be doing it, right? And right. so I think that also kind of echoes what Jesse was just saying, though, too, around like, you know, some, a lot of practitioners, and I'm sort of in that camp of like, if you're not really doing the proactive work, then doing the responsive work is not going to be as effective. Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I really think about the complexities of restorative justice, what I'm really thinking about is how holistically are we really thinking about how we're integrating this stuff? Because when we talk about the justice aspect of it, right, there's all of these things that have to be happening kind of simultaneously uh -huh. for justice to, to be taking place. And I think beyond that, sometimes what happens is people see like, oh, restorative justice, that's, this is the fun, right? Even though patients already made it very clear, it's not new, but it feels new for a lot of people mm -hmm. and it feels innovative and it feels like this like great tool that we can just use. And it's like, yes. And, um, right. There's, we want to maintain the integrity of what restorative justice is and can be in spaces and communities. And I think too often, sometimes people are like, well, let's just get in a circle. Like, well, right. what does that mean to be in circle? <laughs> right. Like, are, have you set agreements? Have you, um, have you practiced, you know, think, or have you, you know, gotten to community? Have your facilitators really thought about how they're showing up with their positionality, with the group of people that they're going to be working with, right? There's, there's all of these kind of little nuanced kind of things that I think people are often just so quick to rush in to, you know, start, which I'm like, yay, I love that for you. Um, but can we take a step back? 
can we do some assessment of ourselves, of our institutions, of the communities that we're going to be doing this work in so that we can be really thoughtful about how we are implementing it, how we are kind of unfolding these practices in this space so that it doesn't get watered down, so that you're not doing pre-conferencing if you're going to be doing responsive stuff in a way that you're now creating more harm because you've not done the work of ensuring that someone actually was ready to take accountability and also to make sure that the person who's been impacted was ready to hear both the intention and the impact, right? Like being able to hear both those pieces, not saying they have to forgive, but they've got to be able to understand, you know, why this person did what they did from their understanding, their perspective. And if they're not really ready to hear that, that session's not going to go well. If that person's not ready because they've decided that this person needs to be suspended and you just move forward and knowing that suspension is not an option, well, you've set that person up for failure. So I think mm -hmm. a lot for me when we think about the complexities of this work is how much of a step back do I need to, to take for myself? Mm -hmm. And how can I do really uh, well at communicating with those, especially in those in positions of authority who are telling me that I need to do this work? Like, no, uh, <laughs> right? So how, can, how comfortable can we get saying no, I think as well, or at least not yet um, in some spaces? Yeah, thank you so much, Desiree, for highlighting that. I think it's um, critical um, to, I guess, assess and spend time with the situation to make sure it's, a, it's if folks are ready, like involved parties are ready to engage in the process. Um, I think you also speak to like who's holding the space. Um, I know I've heard um, some folks speak to kind of you know who's facilitating, what's their role, and and um, and how in their training. But you know, are they a third party? Are they mm -hmm connected to the university in some way. I think I think you touched on all those pieces and I think it's critical that we think about what we need to do to set it up so there's not that additional harm caused because it is possible that these practices can cause additional harm. Um, I wanna uh, hand it over to patients um, to, to share any thoughts that you may have. No, I'm so happy Desiree said that everything <laughs> should not go through restorative justice because <laughs> um, we can't cause more harm than necessary. But I think also people think it is like the bow. It is the band aid. It's like this. It is mm -hmm. it all be all. It's gonna go perfect. I am here to say that's not how it works. I've I've been part of some failed circles, yeah, failed absolutely. failed conferences where I was like, oh, this was horrible. <laughs> Let me mm -hmm. as a facilitator, we're getting we're getting nowhere. So it is not a perfect process because we are human beings. We aren't perfect, and so sometimes it, there is no resolution, or sometimes the resolution really is just separation. We mm -hmm. have decided that we won't talk to each other for the rest of the year. That is what they resolve, and we have to be okay with that. Also, sometimes your formal process might need to be necessary. Like you may need to go through your formal process, and there's some adjacent restorative work done as part of the outcome or part of that reintegration, or we have to separate you from housing, but you can still remain a student. Let's look at what, what does that look like? Um, sometimes it is not appropriate, and sometimes it's not going it, to, there's no guarantee at the end that everyone's going to walk away holding hands and skipping on the rainbows and butterflies. That is not why we do this work. That's not why we go into it. Um, but I just hope, people, I think people think that's what it is. It's like, no, that's not, that's not at all. And I will say, mm -hmm. I've had some personally so failed circles, and I was like, oh no, I didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't set, I, I took ownership. I didn't set it up right. Had I done my homework ahead of time, I would have known that they weren't ready for that space. And so as a facilitator, you really have to do the pre-work, like Desiree said, before you even bring people together into one, one, one space. Yeah, I, I love we're talking about this as natural to human beings, but also complicated and can mm -hmm. do harm and can be used anywhere, but not necessarily should be used. So 
I really appreciate this. So I would like to invite Lena to um, share um, any additional uh, thoughts or questions that you have for folks who have already shared. Thinking about complexities, I'm, I guess I'm thinking more of nuances and certainly like suitability or like the prerequisites of, of RJ is, is an important one. Also what Valerie said earlier about uh, emphasizing the letting go of power, or the redistribution mm -hmm. of power by mm -hmm. us as educators, particularly those who are, are in positions of responding to reports incidents. We have this, this constant problem solving lens where we are holding the power of, of decision-making, of assigning meaning, of, mm -hmm. uh, of prescribing a solution. And it can be, uh, it can feel unnatural or, or challenging for uh, us, for our colleagues to let go of that power. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes that reluctance sounds like, well, what policy violation is it if it's RJ? And, and I want to emphasize like, this is the opposite, like let go of the power and yep. let the transformation come from the people whose experience this mm -hmm. is about. But I want to name that as like a nuance, a, a complexity, a challenge. The, the other thing is I'm, I'm often asked about uh, emotional labor uh, as connected to emotional harm. And uh, specifically, if we are asking people uh, to participate in emotional labor, um, you know, by inviting them into RJ. And so I, I want to distinguish what is emotional labor versus uh, emotional work. Uh, RJ does not require emotional labor in that like harm parties are not asked to do the educating or give of themselves to make the person who caused the harm feel better. We, we do often ask that that they share their personal perspective, um, not to like represent or speak for, for example, uh, historic or systemic harms that might have contributed to the situation, but, but rather I think the facilitator should be doing that. And then mm -hmm. um, that helps people to learn perspectives around the circle and, and seeds a, an opportunity opportunity to explore intent and, and experience and, and helps to situate an individual's actions as a product of systems and, and then heal the local very real harm. And so th that is distinct from emotional work, which is that, that it is hard to, also to Valerie's earlier point about just being present uh, with people who caused you harm and like navigating discomfort, which I, I think as a as a society, we we are a little bit dicey, especially now about navigating discomfort. But but by participating in RJ, people who have been harmed can can invest that emotional work into the reclamation of of their healing, of of agency, of power, of those things. And they're not asked to labor with the goal of fixing things, uh, mm -hmm. as that labor kind of rests with others in, in the circle. But but there is emotional work uh, as part of the the relationship. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for speaking to like all of the components that that one um, that, that I guess that re is required in, in creating the space. And I, I think that's important to for, for all of us to remember. Uh, Valerie, can you close us out with this question? Yeah, I, I just want to underscore everything that everybody has said in saying that you can't turn around and say tomorrow we're going to start an RJ practice in our office. RJ requires time, it inquires tra requires training, um, it requires personal and professional reflection, um, and I think it also requires the community and the institution to be ready for this, right? There are probably some institutions out there that are really stuck on a formal adjudication process. And I think that a restorative practice can really be helping this community question 
why we're doing things the way that we are and why we can't start thinking about alternative pathways to addressing conflict on our campus, right? It's not something we can jump into immediately or lightly because as my colleagues have shared, we cannot create more harm in this process, mm -hmm. right? The, our goal is the opposite. And so in order to do justice, quote unquote, to restorative justice, we must um, sort of slowly inquire within ourselves the capacity and the interest of our community members in starting this journey, because it's a journey, right? It's, it's not like, okay, we've started this process and everything's gonna go great and we won't change anything, right? Restorative justice and the practices respond to the national and global landscape and the local landscape. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be adaptive as we develop our restorative practices on our campus to respond to the things that our students are and our community members are interacting with, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that's right here in our hometown or across the globe, right? I mean, I think there's lots of opportunity for healing, thinking about the impacts of the pandemic, right? Uh, you're just as, as a place to start, right? There's, there's um, different entry points, but all of them require the work of, of setting us up for um, not creating harm. I find that so important because I'm constantly reminded that the campus borders have never been as porous as they are now. Mm -hmm. um, students are getting texts from their parents between classes, they're in class reading the news on Twitter, and they're not just reading the news, they're watching videos of yes. the news. They're watching videos of fathers singing and holding their daughter's hand as they die in Ukraine. They're watching, they're not reading about police violence of black people they're watching it happen and it's a different embodied visceral experience so we don't leave that <laughs> at the gates of campus we're bringing that to this class discussion we're bringing all of that emotion and context to my interpretation of what this person put up as their door deck right mm -hmm. and the impacts of me and so i think bringing that full context um not doing it just seems a, a little silly but i think back to all the student conduct i really like the rules and the policy and the formal structure because i was in charge and i was familiar and i certainly knew that better than the students so it was comfortable for me um and this is just another push to to undo much of that so well we are running out of time and uh i knew we would and we always do and uh we always like to end on this question so the podcast is called student affairs now uh, guests, what are you thinking, troubling, or pondering now? And if you want to share where folks might want to connect with you, we would love to invite that in as well. So Patience, what are you troubling now? Um, I would say troubling is the word. I think what's giving me pause is that um, summer 2020 was an awakening for many people from for pretty much probably all of us on the spring wasn't awakening. We knew this mm -hmm. world, how the world was living. Um, and it still gives me pause that so many of our institutions have really have not done the work to review their systems of oppression that they have mm -hmm. in our campuses. They want to say they want things like restorative practice and restorative justice, but is your system set up mm -hmm. to welcome this work? Is your system showing grace to your students, but also not your students, but your employees who may who may make a mistake and who may be mm -hmm. needing some extra support and extra mm -hmm. lift? And so I still feel like the past couple of years have happened but we're still stuck and I, and that is that definitely gives me pause as someone who tries to live restoratively who tries to infuse in the work I do daily 
Um, and so my hope is that if your campus, if you're listening to this, if you all have not had a real conversation about the systems, the barriers that you have on your on your campus, I'm part of every system, a campus within a system, even having those conversations, mm -hmm. I encourage you to do so. Um, you can find me, I'm the current president for the Association for Student Conduct Administrators. And so I'm easy to find ASCA's website, ASCA.org. Um, if you have concerns, complaints, or you want to join ASCA, please reach out to me. Uh, my Twitter is PDB underscore PhD. I'm the only patient in the 23 California State University system. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, patients. Um, Lena, what are you pondering now? Yeah, and where I, might people who want to connect with you? I'm doing a lot of pondering. I, I'm pondering a lot about well-being and for for the well-being of our colleagues, like of our of our teams. I'm thinking about uh, being appropriately recognized, acknowledged, and and compensated for the ways that we build environments and and learning and development. And so, how uh, I as a leader can can advocate for our people. Um, I'm thinking about students' well-being for uh, specifically mm -hmm. for students to realize that feeling discomfort, feeling feelings, uh, having existential moments, and and certainly even experiencing conflict, like for them to know that those things are very healthy parts of their growth and journey and encouraging them to invest in themselves in ways that are not just clinical transactional. Uh, mm -hmm. so, and then in general, I'm, I'm pondering and maybe troubling about uh, climate change and uh, human compassion and, and peace uh, and also microplastics. Real talk, microplastics keep me up at night and the, the new headlines don't uh, help. Um, I would be happy to, to connect uh, with folks over email. Uh, my email is lkc007. That's just a coincidence uh, at Bucknell. Uh, and I'd be happy to find time to chat. Well, we're just dropping casually here a 007 email address, ASCA president, uh, no big deal. And if, yeah, so email Lane if you want to talk microplastics. Um, <laughs> Valerie, what are you pondering now? Yeah, um, really just to follow up on what Lena said, um, I'm pondering student wellness of our medical students. Uh, I had a, a really wonderful conversation with uh, some uh, co-chairs of our student wellness task force and they share with me um, their discomfort and their existential dilemmas of brain cutting. They had just finished their neurology lab. And it was the first time I think that they had interacted with actual body parts of actual humans. And they were really trying to reconcile sort of this clinical aspect of dissecting human brains versus mm -hmm. the really compassionate human side that these are these were real people at once. And how do we treat them and their bodies with their respect after they've given their, their brains to us essentially? And I have been thinking about how can we help these students heal from that sort of internal dilemma and really honestly thinking about how could we circle in a way to allow them to speak their feelings about, um, about this real clinical experience that many of them will continue to engage in after they become physicians. So that's what I've been pondering. Um, you can find me at Valerie underscore Glassman at Medunkadu, M-E-D.unc.edu. I love the Medunkadu. Um, you can also find me at resolved.com, R-E-S-O-L, 
V Resolve, R-E-S-O-L-V dash ed.com. I'm working with several of our colleagues on um, training and elevating innovative voices for campus climate and social change. I'm really excited about the work that we're doing in helping folks um, do some of the work to prepare their campuses for restorative and transformative practices. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Desiree, what are you troubling now? All of that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the big thing I keep coming back to really is this idea like compassion fatigue, um, you know, kind of based off, you know, what everybody else has said is that I think we're all, um, especially those of you who are doing this work, because especially as, as practitioners, we're also carrying the weight of everything that we're hearing from people, um, you know, trying to engage in this work, trying to hold space for people um, can also really wear us out and, you know, being really tired and exhausted, but still trying to show up for people. So really thinking about what does, what does wellness look like for us practitioners um, so that we can continue to hold this type of space for people so that we can see the larger healing. Um, and, I, and I'll, you know, end there because I could talk forever about things that I'm pondering, <laughs> but mm. I think, um, you know, find me on LinkedIn, but um, also you can email me at D-D-A-N-D-E-R-3, D-A-N-D-E-R-3 at UNO.edu. Fabulous. And uh, Jesse, thank you for co-hosting with me. What are you pondering or troubling now? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, um, you know, it's been an honor to be part of this conversation and being community with you all. Um, I'm pondering a lot of different things right now currently. Um, and I apologize for uh, ringing in the background. Um, but I think, you know, we talked a lot about accountability today and what these systems and pro or processes look like on our campus. Um, I think I'm thinking about kind of as campus representatives or some of us who serve as campus representatives, how can we be accountable to students um, as well and help um, transform um, communities and organizations? Um, not only do I wanna be um, a practitioner who provides space for students to participate in a restorative process, but I think it's critical that as uh, leaders, um, as folks who help universities function that we also um, be accountable to our students and so kind of thinking through like what that looks like and what that means for me and what that means for um, my institution or you know all of our institutions um, it your folks you know are more than welcome to reach out to me if they would like to I'm always interested in having a conversation about restorative justice um, if you are interested um, my email address is um, j-e-s-s-i so jesse um, just with an I dot Ben Vanesti. Um, last name is B as in boy, E-N, V as in Victor, E-N-I-S-T-E at berkeley.edu. Um, so um, if you ever find yourself wanting to just kind of uh, ex examine this type of um, these issues further, I'd, I'd be really interested. And so um, thank you again, Keith and everyone here um, for joining us in this conversation today. Fabulous. And uh, what I'm pondering now, I just yesterday I listened to a podcast that so many of you have connected on with uh, Father Greg Boyle, who uh, started Homeboy Industries in LA, helping former gang members transition. And so much what he talked about of 30 years of doing that is the complexities of accountability and grace. And I think that's what I'm sitting with is the, the dual halves of the circle of accountability and grace. And I think sometimes we want one of those without the other. 
and you all have reminded me of how important those are uh, to be in, in partnership with each other. And, and he spoke to that as well. So we'll get a link to that in the show notes and some other things. Uh, thanks to all of you for being here. I'm so appreciative. Uh, really great. You've given me and I think so many of us so much to, to think about. So thanks all so much. And thanks for our sponsors of today's episode, Leadership and Simplicity. Leadership partners with colleges and universities to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in-person for students and professionals, with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. Leadership offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. Please find out more at leadership.org or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success, and accessibility services. To learn more about Simplicity, connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And a huge shout out to our producer, Nat Ambrosi, who does all of the work behind the scenes to make all of us look and sound good. If you're listening today and already not already receiving our newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com. Scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your email to our MailChimp list. While you're there, check out the archives. I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks again to our fabulous guest and our fabulous co-host today and to everyone who is watching and listening. Make it a great week. Thank you all. <laughs>